Hello and welcome to Rich Pickings, Fidelity's award-winning assets allocation podcast, with me, Richard Edgar. It's Halloween, but markets here in the City of London haven't been spooked by the US Federal Reserve's latest rate cut. See what I did there? In fact, the real question is how much investors can expect help from any central bank to make much difference, and what options remain for governments wanting to ward off recessions. Listen on to find out more. Well, gathered here in our London studio on All Hallows' Eve are three of Fidelity's monstrously impressive investment heads. They are portfolio managers Matt Siddle and Paul Greer and senior sovereign analyst Andressa Tezine. Welcome to you all. Hi, Thank you. Now, pushing this Halloween theme to the limit, let me ask you, uh, what's been your scariest moment in markets, Matt? I think the, uh, the scariest moment has to be uh, when I was uh, a tech analyst and you're investing in growth companies and uh, and it was a video conferencing company, uh, Tandberg, which uh, had seen very strong growth after 9-11 with the, uh, the crash. Nobody wanted to travel. People wanted video conferencing. And then uh, one evening they put out a statement saying that uh, growth had missed expectations about nine or 12 months later. And the heart uh, stopped. Uh, and the uh, the heart dropped through the floor, uh, and uh, and the stock uh, when it opened the next morning was down about sixty percent, oh. which just shows the uh, the volatility that you can get investing in high growth, high multiple companies, but also the uh, the, the you know you get both sides of a coin. And you live to tell the tales. So uh, it eventually now. recovered. <laughs> um, uh, Paul, what about you? Your scariest moment? Yeah, lots of scary moments in EM over the last twenty years, but. I think the one memory which really sticks in my mind is just uh, September 2008, uh, the experience of uh, the global financial crisis. I was working for AIG at the time. At the epicenter. Yeah, which was a uh, center of the storm. And, and, you know, just after Lehman uh, went bankrupt, you know, AIG was next uh, in line, so to speak. And, and I remember the day after Lehman went bust, uh, you know, the, the share price of AIG was down 70, 80 percent on the day. I guess the, the, the one image that's uh, indelibly etched in my memory is, you know, looking at the, the AIG trading floor and seeing every single employee looking at their screens and everyone had the same screen, which was AIG share price collapsing. And, uh, you know, ultimately it was saved from bankruptcy. We, we got the, uh, the the bailout from the Fed. But I think it was really, it was, a, it was a good lesson for me during that time that, you know, crazy things can happen, you know, both positive and negative headlines and, you know, expect the unexpected. Uh, and Andressa. Hopefully not personal, <laughs> not personal for the, for the scary bit. Um, but I think for me would be my good old times in Brazil. I mean, probably this is going to show my age, but this was 1990 when the central bank decided to freeze all deposits so nobody could have not even money to pay the cleaner. So on a personal experience, this was really terrifying that nobody had the money. Absolutely. It sounds like it was. What happened after that? Yeah. So inflation, just to put a little bit in the context, inflation was running at 2,000% per year. At that month, particularly, it was 90%. So obviously, that's why the central bank decided just to shrink the monetary liquidity in the system. And uh, GDP dropped 4% at the time. So there was obviously a m- um, amount of uh, layoffs and, and companies just uh, just shutting down at the time. So it was uh, not only for the country, but I think on a personal experience as well, it was very terrifying. 
well, you've all had some pretty blood-curdling experiences, but let's um, let's uh, put that to one side now and come right up to the uh, present day. And I mentioned at the start of the show that the US Federal Reserve has just cut rates again for the third time since July. We're going to talk uh, later on about whether it'll make any difference or not, but markets had priced in that 25 basis point cut. Uh, so it was the words from the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, and his guidance around possible future cuts that everyone was listening for uh, closely. Um, how did you read that, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was pretty clear, you know, from the press conference that, you know, if the US economy delivers on on the Fed's forecast, it's going to be, you know, no need for any further cuts. They tilted on the the positive side, you know, with the recent trade developments, the consumers doing pretty well, labor markets pretty hot. And it's, you know, it's going to be a a material reassessment of their forecast is what they're going to need to to cut rates further. So the hurdle for further rates is is pretty high. Um, But equally, you know, they, they, they said that it would take significant rise in inflation for them to hike. So I think we're going to be on hold for a while. Anything catch your eye, Andressa? Yeah, not much either. I think everybody just felt that it was very unexcited um, statement yesterday. The only thing is that if clearly they are in this situation after cutting three times, they just left the door open pretty much. But what, what was interesting to me was what Brazil did actually uh, right after the Fed. And Brazil also kind of set the tone that they're also not really on the dovish camp any longer. So it's uh, it just add another layer for emerging markets as well to say maybe reach actually the lowest level of interest rates here. So mm. you probably are seeing that emerging markets in Brazil leading here the, the, the whole queue that is not going to be further cuts or at least not at the same pace as we saw in 2019. We've reached the end of, of one particular um, act, I suppose. So no great surprises from the Fed, um, but are there any surprises in our house view? I caught up earlier with Fidelity's lead cross-asset strategist, Wenwen Lindroth. When when you coordinate the house view, you bring together all the perspectives from the different asset classes at, um, at a top level. Um, what changes are we seeing from last month? Well, Richard, I think that we've gained greater conviction that the global economy in 2020 will bend but not break. The recent developments globally have given us some positive indications for 2020, namely some thawing in U.S.-China trade relations and also what seems to be the removal of a no-deal Brexit here in the U.K. Certainly for now. It looks less likely, doesn't it? So that's one big thing um, off the the agenda. What about central bank support? Because that's been... um, a theme as well, hasn't it? Central banks continue to be on the front foot with respect to supporting the expansion um, that's lasted for 10 years now. And what about the states? Housing, that market could improve within an impact on consumer spending, I imagine? Yes, indeed. The Fed cuts in the U.S. um, seem to be working as they should in supporting uh, mortgage refinancing, new housing starts. This is a major part of the U.S. economy. If the housing market can continue to be on this positive trajectory together with a strong consumer, it might be enough to outweigh the impacts of the manufacturing recession that we're seeing in the U.S. and globally. Okay, so that's the interpretation you're choosing to take. It's a, a, a rosier view of, um, of the world, meaning markets could, could rise off the back of that. Let's have a look at your, your allocations then. What is the shift within that? If the economy can stabilize during 2020, then um, there is a path for further risk on sentiment. And in this case, we'd see value and income outperforming over other sectors and styles. That's that's a big shift. The value, you say, is coming into the fore now, finally. It is. After, what, a decade? 
It is. So uh, after 10 years of being out of favor, we think that they would be poised for a recovery um, should the market surge in 2020. So that's at the expense of the, the growth stocks um, uh, in particular that have done so well of late and quality too. Exactly. Okay. So a shift into value. What about the, the, the allocations themselves? Because overall, we've remained neutral on equities and credit. Yes, we have. Um, the downside risks haven't completely gone away. The trade tensions will remain there, geopolitical risks. Um, we are certainly late stage or late cycle after 10 years of expansion. We're still carefully watching areas of vulnerability and signals such as 2020 earnings estimates, consumer and employment data, and private equity flows as a leading indicator. So um, we're still mindful of the downside. Okay, so within equities then, which regions are you favoring over the other? Yes, um, well, the U.S. has been overbought in our view. So at this point, we're going to favor Japan, Europe, and the U.K., and particularly if the U.K. and Europe can come to an understanding, um, these regions of the world, which have been beaten down, could see some positive momentum. Well, sitting in London, that's a nice thing to hear. And uh, in fixed income, uh, what are you favoring there? We haven't made any changes to our allocation in fixed income. Our most out-of-consensus call is to be bullish inflation. And indeed, U.S. CPI has moved up to 23 to 2.4%. Um, that's core CPI. Over the course of 2020, we see headline inflation moving up to meet that. And we would play inflation through break-evens. Um, and this is, from a fundamental perspective, supported by tight labor markets, rising wages, also tariff impacts. We still like EM and Asian corporates, and we remain underweight DM sovereign bonds, namely bonds and treasuries. Okay, thank you very much, Wen-Wen. So the interesting thing there, um, the economy bending, not breaking, that great phrase uh, that we'll continue to use into 2020, and a big change with value stocks. Um, now back in vogue, you think. So uh, that's definitely one to watch. Thank you very much indeed, Wen-Wen Lindros. Thank you, Richard. Matt, back to you now. You manage equities in Europe. How strong is this rotation to value going to be? I think one of the key drivers is going to be whether the monetary policy easing and the sharp acceleration we've seen in liquidity, whether that has the usual lagged impact on industrial activity. Now, typically, when you see a liquidity accelerate, industrial lead indicators follow six, 12 months later on. And, and each time you've seen that happen, you have had a period of value rally, a, 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 you know, a, a recovery rally. Even in the last few years, we've had four or five of these. None of them have gone on to be structural bull markets in value, but that acceleration in lead indicators can cause a rotation uh, and a value rally within the market. So best to be ready for um, a recovery, um, but not to put all of your eggs into that basket. Yeah, and, and the question really is how, how effective monetary policy is when, when the rates are as low as they are, particularly in the eurozone, because what has worked for 20 or 30 years as a lead index may or may not be as effective once you get down to zero or, or lower rates. So I wouldn't want to make a big, bold call on this, but there's a clear potential that it happens. OK, well, let's have a chat now about central banks, because the world seems to be propped up by their stimulus. It has been for a decade. Paul, you focus on emerging market um, debt, but as an observer um, of this market, do you think the Fed's policy is doing any good? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, uh, I agree in that rates are, are particularly low and it, it may take some time for that feed through to, to activity. I mean, there's no obvious sign of it uh, at the minute, albeit, you know, the US economy is still doing okay. I mean, the, the GDP number that came out yesterday, it's still clipping at a, at a fairly healthy pace. But, you know, what is pretty apparent to me is just, you know, we're running out of road in terms of monetary policy space, certainly for the G10 central banks. I think in EM, it's a bit different. Real rates are, are much higher. So they've got more room and more ammunition to, to cut rates. But I think, you know, over the next year or two, we're going to come to a place where central banks need to get even more innovative with monetary policy and and that introduces the whole concept of a fiscal easing potential. Oh, we'll come to that in a minute. I just want to talk about the US economy though. You mentioned GDP data and it's low, a little bit better than people expected. But underneath the surface there, it's a slightly more complicated picture, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- there's a real bifurcation going on. I mean, I, I think in the US, you know, the, the consumer still seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, the labor market is is, is, is pretty hot. Um, but at the same time, you know, manufacturing and, and exporters have had a, a pretty horrible, you know, last 18 months, really. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, whether it's CapEx or investment, you know, all of this stuff has been has been suffering. And that's really weighing on on business sentiment in the US. So that's the, the kind of challenge I think the Fed have going forward. Uh, and I think we'll just need to continue monitoring data um, to, to see where we go. And Andressa, how does this easing cycle, or perhaps the end of it, um, how does that play out um, in the markets that you cover? Yeah, for emerging markets in general. Before that, if I may, actually, I just want to, when you ask about uh, the, the implications of the monetary policy and is this working for the Fed, clearly for the Fed probably is working because you have a much more, uh, the, the mechanism, the transmission mechanism works between the central bank and the consumers. But it's this direct. is not always is direct. And obviously the credit market is huge compared to some countries that we have in emerging markets. In the case of emerging markets, that's the problem, because even though you see central banks also cutting, embarking on this dovish speed, but you don't necessarily have the same mechanism. So whenever you use monetary policy to affect inflation, because inflation is going higher, so in this case, a hawkish central bank, the mechanisms are there. So people people feel the, the pain in their pocket. But to use central banks in the case of emerging markets to prompt actually economic activity is a little bit different than developed markets, because this mechanism, this transmission mechanism from the central bank to the consumers are not necessarily there. Mexico, for example, because credit... Uh, credit to GDP is too low, it's less than 30%. So you don't have the mechanism to make the central banks actually prompt the economic activity to grow. So what would work? So yeah, that's where we're in this new phase and this new questioning about monetary policy and the limits of monetary policy and what we should implement. And there's a lot of discussion, especially starting in the US, obviously, about even have Olivia Blanchard, for example, talking about using more debt, more fiscal easing and trying to implement on the counter-cyclical effects. I think that's the new the new thing. I mean, Yeah, Paul, and I, I think we've already seen a couple of examples of that in EM, just even in the last few weeks. Uh, you know, India has had a big cut in its corporate taxes, uh, and also in uh, in South Korea as well. They've you know they've widened their budget deficit targets. So you know, perhaps this is maybe something of a blueprint coming from some of the Asian countries to how you know maybe some G10 central banks. Uh, and G10 governments need to think about fiscal policy over the coming years. Yeah. I want to bring back actually to EM again, that the fact that this, this movements or this social unrest that you were seeing, I mean, you saw in, in Ecuador, you saw in Chile recently, so there's not much room for fiscal austerity. 
mainly because inequality has grown to a certain level in the world, not only in emerging markets, but uh, everywhere, that there's no room for fiscal austerity, at least politically speaking. And this is the new thing for 2020. And it's not just in uh, emerging markets. Matt, if I can turn to you, uh, certainly we seem to have run out of, of, uh, of road for fiscal austerity. And in fact, there might be some stimulus on the way here as well. We've got an election coming up in, uh, in uh, just a few weeks. What's going to happen? Well, I think there's uh, a lot's going to happen over the next few weeks. But uh, but I think whichever way we go and, and whoever ends up as uh, as prime minister, you know, both main parties are talking more about fiscal stimulus. And, and I think the question really is whether we have more fiscal stimulus or have a lot more fiscal stimulus. And, uh, and you know, it is a clear change in, in perception and, uh, and, and that message has been heard on both sides of the political debate. Is there a danger? if we have too much fiscal stimulus? Well, certainly you can overdo what could be a good thing and currency markets in particular, I think, would have questions to, to raise if uh, if we went too far on that. Uh, well, they wouldn't angle. take long to come up with their own answers, I'm sure. Paul? W- yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you look at, you know, something like global debt to GDP ratios, I mean, they've been going the wrong way, so to speak, uh, you know, for, for many years. And the obvious example is something like Japan, who have an enormous debt burden. Uh, I think in terms of fiscal stimulus, it's, it's, it's one thing for developed markets to go down that route. And maybe they have some space just because they're reserve currencies, etc. And the, the market maybe give them a little bit more room for maneuver on that front. But for emerging markets to do that, it's, it's quite different. Um, I think they'll be punished by the credit rating agencies a lot quicker. Uh, and EM will always need that additional risk premium relative to what you get in the developed market world. So I think for for DM to go down the route of fiscal easing would be a lot more of a challenge. But by the same token, I think EM is in a different place in monetary policy uh, because real rates are much higher in EM. So you could see a, a policy divergence in terms of easing between EM and DM over the next couple of years. Yeah. If I can add, actually, another layer to that is uh, ESG. Because clearly, developed market has a huge agenda um, to fulfill all the Paris Agreement in 2015, so until 2030. So this is going to be another layer, I think, in terms of a fiscal easing, because given that they will have to spend much more on low carbon emission, new technologies, new R&D, and clearly they will have to ease in a little bit on the on the debts and the targets. Uh, and with that, I think the only way they can do that for financing the debt is green bonds. And I think, you know, if you just look at um, the political discourse in some countries, you know, that message is being used, particularly in somewhere like Germany, where there's been a very prolonged uh, and strong aversion to fiscal stimulus. That argument is starting to change the political discourse, even in countries which have been very pro-austerity. That, that really is remarkable to see that um, that change after, I mean, this is, a, this is almost a, sort of deep within the psyche in Germany. Yeah, I, I I don't think we should overplay it at this stage. I think what we've got is a change in the discourse rather than a change in the action. Um, But clearly... Words are um, certainly cheaper. Yeah, yeah. But clearly uh, a move in that direction is the first step and and you could clearly see a real change. Yeah, and I think the, the most important thing is regulation. If they change the the regulatory environment 
uh, that's where you can see a big shift. For example, they could just change pension funds. We, If pension funds would be obliged to invest, I don't know, 2% uh, in green bonds, you're going to see a massive shift to to this kind of uh, asset class. And this will be a source of financing for the public, for the, for the governments, for the public debt. Um, obviously, there'll be much more credibility in the developed markets than emerging markets. But I can clearly see that's the path for financing the the debt, the growing public debt in developed markets. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think up to now when it comes to ESG, it's been very much the buy side firms have been coming up with their own opinions and ideas how to you know, think more ESG centric. But I think it's only a matter of time before governments and regulators start to tell us what to do from an ESG perspective. That's That's on the horizon over the next few years. Okay, so taking a step back from all of this action and and what might be happening in in the years to come, given all the easing, we've got low rates, we've got uh, negative rates, QE, why are we not seeing growth in the world? Big question. (laughs) I think so far is uh, all related to one chart, which is about uncertainty. I don't know if you've ever seen this chart. Uh, IMF has published actually about uncertainty index and it's at the highest level ever. So this obviously has a lot to do with the trade dispute uh, between China and US. So it has affected manufacturing sector, it has affected trade. And, uh, and with trade going down, global growth goes down. So it's pretty much what we call this is slowdown in manufacturing sector. So far, what has been Holding up a little bit, that's why you're not talking about recession yet, is consumption. And as you previously mentioned, an employment rate is at the lowest levels. We are seeing some growth at least on real income. And that's where keeping us afloat. But um, the big question is for 2020, how these consumers are going to behave in 2020 when they see inflation going higher, real disposable income going down, and for the corporates, what it means, uh, this margin compression, the compression of margins. So that's a fairly scary picture for Halloween. Matt, what about the ECB? Um, because they seem to have reached pretty much the end of um, monetary policy. Is there, They're in negative rates already. Nothing left for them to do. I think the ECB has got little that it can do, and that's a message we're sending, that they, they that Europe needs to move towards a, a fiscal easing to, to get a, an acceleration in growth. Now, if we just picked up on one of the points that Andressa made about uncertainty, the other thing that could help is that as we get to having a, a potential Brexit deal, uh, that, uh, that has had a clear overhang on uh, corporate uncertainty in particular in Europe. So that could also help. But beyond that, I think within Europe, we're going to have to start moving towards fiscal policy. Okay, right. We've almost reached the end of um, our time. But I'd like to ask you now about your hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Matt, I'm going to come back to you first. So uh, hot cakes. Um, I think the, uh, the the UK stock market is uh, is exceptionally cheap uh, compared to any long term uh, history. Um, there's been significant uncertainty, which has held back activity. And were we to get um, a, a Conservative government and a Brexit deal, then those are uh, scenarios where where I think that market could do very well. Uh, and then on the uh, on the hot potato side. Um, my personal view is uh, is I would be dropping. 
housing, peripheral debt, uh, any medium-term view, you've, you've got very low returns. If there's any return of recession or, or concerns, ju- just for concerns could lead to a blowout of spread. So I think there, instead of being a risk-free return, you could actually end up with having a return-free risk. I like it. Paul, how about you? Yeah, um, hot kick, uh, I think for me, is still EM, hard currency, sovereign debt. You know, it's it's one of the few uh, parts of the global investment universe where you get 5% plus yields. Uh, and for me, this kind of low rate, uh, low inflation environment globally is, is likely to persist into 2020. And I think we'll still see inflows coming into the, the EM hard currency debt universe. It's, it's not perfect. Uh, it's risky. It's volatile. Uh, but it's one of the few parts of the world that still gives you pretty, pretty decent yield. And your hot um, potato? And hot potato, what I don't like, uh, the one that really stands out for me is is currencies uh, and particularly uh, Asian currencies. You know, I, I think Chinese growth is going to continue to moderate. I'm not particularly optimistic about the outlook for you know U.S. China trade detente. Uh, you know, going into next year. Uh, and for me, you know, countries like Thailand and Singapore, the, the currencies are still very overvalued. Okay, and Andressa, your hot cake. Let's have that first of all. Hot cake first. I thought it was going to be the hot potato first, because to justify my hot cake, I would all need right, to we'll explain my hot around. potato. What's yeah. your hot potato? <laughs> yeah. So what I would drop actually would be uh, U.S. Treasuries, uh, mainly because I think there will be some kind of a, the the delta of inflation going higher next year will be there, and the market's definitely not prepared for that. Uh, with that, you would have U.S. stock as well coming down. So it would be U.S. Treasuries and U.S. stocks, and then I would like to, for my hot cake, what I would like to buy, given that I have this scenario on the backdrop, the backdrop um, is something that is uncorrelated to treasuries and uncorrelated to stocks. So in this case, it would be green bonds, as I was talking about ESG and the, and the potential change in regulatory environment and more issues in, in green bonds. And those probably are going to be unrelated to US treasuries. Fantastic. Well, thank you all very much indeed. And I hope that's given you an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. Thanks very much to my Halloween studio guests, Andressa, Paul and Matt, and to Wenwen Lindroth for the house view. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark. If you've liked what you've heard, then please subscribe and rate us on your podcast app. And why not try out our sister podcast, Fidelity Answers, with the latest episode of our Investor's Guide to China series. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.